And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching without, with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and looked, took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also. For well, that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, we are looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Uh, this winter, all winter, we're going to be studying the first half of the Gospel of Mark. And as we mentioned last week, uh, that part of this gospel attempts to answer the question, who is Jesus? And uh, this week, the passage we are looking at, uh, Mark attempts to answer that question by showing us that Jesus is the one who has authority. Jesus is the one who has authority. Now, in Boston, I think we are people who like the idea of someone who is an authority. If you ever go to a conference or something, uh, whenever they introduce the next speaker, they, they get him up and they list all the things that that speaker has done. There's a long list of, of accolades and, and awards, and the more degrees, the better, right? The more accomplishments, the more publications. We like to know that someone is an authority on a subject. We like it when people have mastered a, a skill or a trade. But we don't really like people who claim to be our authority. We don't like people who then take that expertise that they might have and then say, now, because I know these things, you must do what I say. We don't like that. That kind of authority rubs us the wrong way. But as you pick up the Gospel of Mark, you realize pretty quickly that Jesus didn't present himself as an authority. Jesus doesn't present himself as just another expert. No, he says that he is our authority. He says that he's your authority. He's my authority. 
And that's something that when we first hear it, it might sound kind of awful. <laughs> it might sound kind of scary. But what I hope we're going to find out this morning as we dig into that idea is that actually understanding Jesus' authority is a key piece of the gospel. Knowing that Jesus is our authority is actually one of the things that makes the gospel such good news. And so in order to get there this morning, to understand that, I want us to simply look at three aspects of Christ's authority. I want us to see the scope of his authority. Then I want us to see the freedom of his authority. And finally, I want to look at the assertion of Christ's authority. So the scope of Christ's authority, the freedom of Christ's authority, and then also the assertion of Christ's authority. Uh, so starting out, when we look at the, the scope of Christ's authority, Mark draws that out by kind of pushing the story right up to the front. From the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, he wants us to see that, that authority is the trait that sets Jesus apart from everyone else. And as the passage goes on, the one that Manny read from us, it, it progressively reveals just how great that authority is. It starts out right here in verse 22. It says that Jesus now has gone into the local synagogues at Capernaum, and he's beginning to teach. And verse 22 tells us, The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. So the people back then were not a lot different from people today. Uh, just like today, uh, people looked backwards, looked to the people who came before them for expertise. So if you wanted to make a point with your teaching, back then, just like today, if you wanted your points to have some weight, you would cite the experts. You would refer to the people who, who were, were proven on that subject. If you want to make a point, you don't just say, you know, here's what I think about it. But you say, well, here's what someone else who knows more than me said about it, right? If I'm going to make a point to you, I'll, I'll refer to those same kinds of authorities. If I want to act like I know something about science, you know, I'll say, Stephen Hawking said science, blah, 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 whatever he said. I don't know. Um, that's what the scribes did. That's what we do. They, they based what they taught off of especially ancient authorities. But Jesus was different. Jesus spoke as one with his own authority. Jesus didn't simply say, uh, here's what the ancients said. He didn't say, well, you've always heard, just like, just like Scripture says, you shouldn't commit adultery. No, he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. He had that habit. He would say, I say this. He often even used the, uh, the, the specific formula where he would say, truly, truly, I say to you. And people were shocked by that. I know if, if I had been there, too, I would be on the, on the wrong side of this, right? I know that if there was some guy standing up there and saying, well, here's what I say. I know I would be one of those guys in the crowd saying, who does this guy think he is? <laughs> he can't be more than 30 years old, right? And he's up there saying, well, here's what Scripture says, but here's what I say. 
I would, I would be on the wrong side of that. And maybe a lot of these people were there too. But I think that could only last for so long because it tells us in verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. All of a sudden, Jesus shows that he is not all talk. Jesus isn't simply acting like someone who has authority. Jesus has authority. He has so much authority that the people are stunned by it. As I was reading this passage, it actually made me think of that scene in, in The Incredibles. Have you guys seen that movie, the, the Disney movie about the superhero family that's kind of living undercover in the suburbs? Um, and there's a scene where Mr. Incredible is coming home from work and he's had a really hard day at the insurance company and he's all angry and irritated and he gets out of his car and he slams the door and then he picks it up over his head and the little boy that lives next door is like riding by on his tricycle and the boy's sitting there just stunned and the bubble pops in his mouth. I feel like there's a little bit of that <laughs> that's happening in this scene. That they see that, they suspect that Jesus is a teacher with authority. And then all of a sudden, with one word, he casts out a demon. The people are shocked. It tells us in verse 27, they say, they say, they were all amazed and they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Like, what is this? He doesn't just talk like he has authority. He has authority. He can command the spiritual realm with his voice. And that's not all. As the passage goes on, we see that Jesus' authority is even bigger than that. The next verse, they go to Simon and Andrew's house. And he heals Simon's mother just with the touch of his hand. And then it tells us that the masses hear about it, and they start coming to him. They see that this guy has a power that is unrivaled by anyone else. He has authority not just in his teaching, not just to command spirits, but he seems to have control over our physical bodies as well. He can heal sickness. And so Jesus becomes this instant celebrity in Capernaum. People are crowding around to see him. And Mark tells us instead of indulging in that fame, he goes off to a desolate place to pray. And when his disciples finally find him, he says, it's time for us to move on. We need to go to another town because this isn't what I came for. He says, I came here to preach. That's something worth noting. We see that in all of the Gospels, that Jesus' miracles, the powerful things that he does, that's not the point of his ministry. His purpose was what we looked at last week. His purpose was to declare the coming of God's kingdom. And his miracles, those things that he, he does throughout the Gospels, they're always performed in the service of that message. In other words, all of Jesus' miracles, everything that he does, it always points towards that day when God is going to come and set things right. 
When God is going to come and restore things the way that they're supposed to be. That's why Jesus doesn't do magic tricks, right? Jesus' miracles, he's not making camels disappear. But he's doing these, these acts that bring forth shalom. Right? He's, he's showing people that he has the authority and he has the power to set things back the way they're supposed to be. And so that's Mark's first emphasis. He wants us to see that Jesus is a teacher that is unrivaled. He's unlike anyone else. And he doesn't simply claim authority, but he has this all-encompassing authority. Authority that, that the entire world witnessed as soon as he arrived. So that's the scope of his authority. But the other thing this passage shows us, uh, the second thing I want to talk about, is it also shows us the freedom of Christ's authority. And where we see that specifically is in the reaction here that the crowd gives. Now, in your Bibles, if you pulled them out, uh, in verse 22 and in verse 27, we see this reaction. Our Bibles tell us that the people were astonished and that they were amazed when they heard Christ teaching, when they saw Christ casting out demons. But those words also, in the Greek, carry with it not just a sense of amazement, but they have in it uh, this nuance of, of fear. What, what Mark is telling us is, after Jesus cast out the demon, the people weren't giving a standing ovation. No, they were, they were afraid. They were nervous. They were a little bit alarmed. When Jesus did that, when Jesus put his power and authority on display, the people in that crowd realized, this guy's not messing around. They realized this guy is not just another prophet. He's not just another teacher. He's not just somebody who's following in the footsteps of John the Baptist. The way William Lane put it, a New Testament scholar, he said, in this moment they realized that Jesus spoke with an authority that permitted neither debate nor theoretical reflection. In this moment, he confronted the congregation with the absolute claim of God upon their whole person. And so when the crowds say, what is this? They're worried. They're worried. They're, they're, they're putting two and two together. They're saying, if this guy has that kind of authority, what does that mean for us? And Mark wants us to ask the same question. Mark wants you to ask the same thing. If this guy has the authority to command spirits to heal the sick, what does it mean for me? If Jesus has authority over all creation, well, doesn't that mean it includes us as well? If Jesus has authority over all creation, doesn't that mean that we have to listen to him? Mark is showing us here that Jesus is coming in the power of the living God. And that means we don't get to filter his teaching through our opinions. It means we don't get to critique him the way we critique everyone else. It means that we have to accept his authority is an authority over us. And now I think we're getting to the heart of the matter. 
Now I think we are, are getting to the, the crux here as we look at this from our perspective in 2017. Jesus' claim to have authority all, over all creation is a claim that he has authority over you. And if we're being honest, we hate that. We rebel against that. Even those of us who would have said we were Christians for years, even those of us who come to church every single Sunday, we hate that. And we might pay lip service to this idea of submission. We might pay lip service to the idea of surrender to God. But it's not how we live, right? No. No, instead, we live saying, well, I'll submit to God as long as his plans don't interfere with mine. I'll, I'll submit to him as long as it's convenient for me, you know, just like the rest of the world. When our convenience, when our comfort conflicts with the law of God, well, we give ourselves the priority. We give our desires the place of power. One of the highest values in our society is freedom. And that means that, that we believe in our own sovereignty. We believe in not the sovereign God, but the sovereign self. We believe that no one has the right to tell us how we're supposed to live our lives. If you're uh, familiar, there's a web forum in this community called JP Moms. Um, it's like uh, for moms in Jamaica Plain and dads, uh, Roxbury and the surrounding neighborhoods. And um, there is regularly on this uh, community an event that, that plays out. It's a moment when a mom or a dad will be out in public somewhere with their kids. And then another person, maybe another parent, comes up and makes some suggestion about how they could parent better. <laughs> right? Maybe passive-aggressively, maybe aggressively. And it never goes over well. And let me say, I, I, that's annoying. Don't do that. <laughs> but, but, but when the people come back to this, this, web, this uh, web conversation, when they bring up the story and tell other people about it, inevitably, there's always this piece of advice that comes up. This, this assumed word of truth that you always find, and that is, no one has the right to tell you how to parent your children. And we all kind of agree with that, don't we? Right? We hear that and we say, yeah, that sounds right to me. I mean, let's, let's pay attention here. This is the gospel of the postmodern society. This is our refrain, whether it's parenting or anything else, whether it's someone telling you how you're supposed to, to drive or how you're supposed to dress or how you're supposed to spend your time. We always say, as long as I'm not hurting anyone else, no one has the right to tell me how to live but me. As long as I'm not hurting anybody, no one can tell me what to do. And that might sound like truth to us. But you know, in the history of the world, this is a relatively new concept. This is something that philosophers call absolute negative freedom. That means absolute negative freedom is this idea, it's not simply freedom from evil. 
It's not just the idea of freedom from oppression, but it is the idea of complete freedom. Freedom from anything that might restrain us outside of ourselves. It is the complete lifting up, the complete exaltation of our own personal choices. Freedom from all restraints. And in principle, that sounds good. The concept's not so bad, right? No one has the right to interfere in my life as long as I'm not hurting anybody else. As long as I'm not doing any harm. It sounds great until we try to figure out what harm means. Because think about it. If each one of us, if each individual in this room decides that there is no authority higher than me, how can anyone decide between what's right and wrong? Where are we supposed to go for those definitions? Where are we supposed to go to decide what's harmful? Well, maybe you'll say, well, we just kind of go with what society says. We go with what most other people think. We just gauge the temperature of the culture around us. Well, I don't think that's a very good plan. <laughs> I mean, just look at the society that we live in. Just look at the election that we just went through. We are not in a culture that agrees on what's harmful, right? I mean, do you think, for instance, do you think systemic racism is a problem that we're morally obligated to stop? Well, whatever you say, about half the people agree with you. Do you think that climate change is an issue? Do you believe that we're obligated to care for our environment? Well, whatever you say, about half the people agree with you. Do you think that sex is a moral issue? Do you think the way you spend your wealth or care for the poor is a moral issue? Well, good luck letting society define right and wrong there. We cannot agree on what's harmful. So where do we go? If we can't go there, where do we go? Well, then maybe you say, well, you got to look inside. you got to go with what you know is true in your heart. Well, history shows us that's not a very good plan. History shows us that exalting our own personal freedom and our own personal intuitions doesn't lead to freedom at all. We might think that. We might think, well, the less limits I have, the less boundaries I have, the less limits on my desires and choices and actions, the freer I'll be. But it's just not true. When you think that way, you are completely ignoring some of the basic realities of our human existence. You're ignoring some of the basic realities that, that we aren't just living our life on our own. We live our lives together in a society, in a community of people. And when you make your own personal freedom sacred, when you make your own personal freedom sovereign, it actually erodes community. It fragments society. It leads to more oppression. It leads to more injustice. The sovereign self is what created the racial and social inequities in this country. The disregard for God's authority to tell us what's right and wrong. 
the rejection of the law of God in favor of what? The instincts of men. The instincts of women. Our collective decision making. That's what built structures that could impress, could oppress entire races and classes of people. And today, as we're thinking about Martin Luther King, as we remember that uh, his call to civil disobedience, we need to remember that wasn't a call just to go with your gut. Right? That was a call for us to renew our submission to the authority of the Word of God. He says, in contrast to the relativism of our society, Christianity sets forth a system of absolute moral values and affirms that God has placed within the structure of this universe moral principles that are fixed and unchangeable. Dr. King says, if any earthly institution or custom conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to oppose it. You must never allow the transitory, evanescent demands of a man-made institution to take precedent over the eternal demands of the Almighty God. Look, if the legacy of slavery, of Jim Crow, if, if the new Jim Crow is showing us anything, it shows us that we cannot let our instincts as individuals or even our instincts as a society be our final authority. Just because most people agree on something doesn't mean it's right. Just because there was a time when most of the nation thought it was okay to own other people, it didn't mean it was okay. If we want true freedom, we cannot be our own authority. We need God's authority. Otherwise, we're going to destroy each other. Or put it another way, when we are free from God's authority, that is when we are the most oppressed. That is when we are enslaved. That is when we are captive to the powers of Satan and sin and death. Folks, I hope you, you see this, that freedom is not the absence of authority in our lives, but it is all about having the right authority. It's about having the liberating authority of Jesus Christ. If what you really want is freedom, if what we really want is our lives to be liberated, then we need to come in submission to the authority of Christ Jesus. That's the freedom. That's the freedom of his authority. The third thing we need to see, though, is how he asserts that authority. I want us to look at the assertion of Christ's authority. Because here's the thing. Even if you agree with these ideas, basically, even if you agree that unfettered individual freedom is a disaster, even if you kind of get that rational argument, we still wrestle with this. We still wrestle with believing Christ's authority in our life is good. 
Like those people who are standing in the synagogue who listened to Jesus teach, we are still fearful. We're still nervous about what it's going to mean if we submit to him. And in one sense, we should be. In one sense, you should be a little bit afraid. These people in the crowd saw the truth. They saw that Jesus was not one to be trifled with. He was the authoritative son of God who could command demons with the sound of his voice, who could heal with the touch of his hands. Surely, a God like that has the ability to crush us if he wants to. Surely, a God like that has the power to oppress us if it's his desire. So how can we risk it? How can we risk surrendering to such a frighteningly powerful God? I can't help but uh, be reminded here of probably one of the most top 10 overused sermon illustrations, but I'm going to trot it out again, and you guys are going to hear it. It's that scene from the Chronicles of Narnia when Susan is talking with Mr. Beaver about Aslan, and she finds out that Aslan is, is a lion and not a man. You know, Aslan is the Christ figure in those books. And she says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver, he responds and he says, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The reason why Mark pushes this all the way up to the very front of his gospel is he wants us to see that. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is not safe, but he's good. And we know he's good because of the way he asserts his authority. We might fear that surrendering fully to the will of God is going to make us miss out. We might fear that submitting our lives to Christ will, will, will limit us somehow. That actually following God in obedience and going with His desires and His plan for our holiness instead of our own desires for sin, we might fear that's going to restrict us. We might worry that obeying His will in our relationships or obeying His will in our workplace or Obeying his will in our, our finances or obeying his will with our lusts and our desires and our addictions. We may worry that, that that may stifle us. We might worry that his rule will oppress us. But the truth is just the opposite. The truth is that, that Christ's oppression is the only way to true freedom. Submission to him is the only way for us to become the men and women that we were created to be. As we read through this, as we read through the rest of the gospel, as we find out where all this are going, we can be assured of that because we find out that Christ is a ruler unlike any other. You see, the great news here the great news of the authority of Jesus Christ is that he is the only ruler who asserts his authority through sacrifice and surrender. Not by oppressing, 
Not by crushing people beneath his will. Not by questioning people saying, how dare you? But no, he asserts his authority in our lives by sacrificing himself for us. By submitting himself to that same law that he's asked us to follow. By bearing the penalty for our disobedience on the cross. He asserts his power not by restricting our lives, but by setting us free from the powers of Satan and sin and death. And so today, here, we have the opportunity. We have the opportunity to follow him into that freedom. To follow him in that same kind of surrender. Today, Jesus invites us out of the oppressive power of the sovereign self and into the liberating freedom of the merciful God. I want you to hear that this morning. I want you to hear Jesus as he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my law. Submit to me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the Gospel of John, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the one who came with true authority to declare the coming of the kingdom of God. And Lord, we confess that we have made a mess of things here. Lord, by rejecting your authority and choosing our own, we have oppressed others and we have built a society that is based upon oppression. But Lord, I thank you that you came in power and you died for us to set us free. And Lord, I pray for every person in this room who is living enslaved today, and I pray, God, that you would give us the faith to surrender to you. I pray that you would give us the faith to confess our sins and to come before you and ask you to be our Lord. Whether we've done that once or a thousand times, Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.